One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day, folks, and welcome to another episode of Encanas Down Under. On this chapter episode, we'll be diving into the life of the legendary Bill Chalker, who is one of Australia's most renowned investigators and researchers on the UFO phenomena. Over the years, he has represented many organisations worldwide, as well as the author of the books The Oz Files, The Australian Story, and Hair of the Alien, DNA and Other Forensic Evidence of Alien Abductions. And just to give a bit of a heads up, we did have a bit of an audio interference this episode on Bill's side, so don't worry folks, it's not your radio. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel and Canada Down Under podcast, where you can watch the interview from our live stream. So let's welcome to the show, Bill Chalker. Bill, can you hear us, mate? You, you there? No, you're still muted there, mate. <laughs> oh, oh, no, we lost him. We'll get him back on. Uh, that was my fault. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> Bloody buttons, eh? Yeah, that's no, the way the icons are coming up on the phone. Yeah, no, that's right, mate. Yeah, look, we had to go and change away yeah, from the Zoom can... there from um, the stupid thing that interrupting us there last time there. So we've gone back to Messenger and using that one there. So hopefully it'll work pretty well tonight. I hope everyone can hear us so, and see us all right. So, so have you got me right there? Or? I've got you good, mate. We've got you there. We're working, I think. Okay. <laughs> right. Mate, thank you very much for coming back on the show, mate. It was absolutely fantastic having you on there last last uh, couple of weeks ago um it was great awesome show there mate and people have been cheering for you to come back on so thank you very much for coming back on the show it's absolutely fantastic having you on yeah pleasure, pleasure. so uh, let's try and um go from where we left off there mate um you're sort of dropping a few hints there and i'm really interested on the, uh, you're hearing uh, you're talking about this mount butler um mate can you tell us a bit about that that's really got me curious on what was going on there with your experiences yeah, well, Mount, Mount Butler is a place that really preoccupied me while I was at the University of New England, um, such as Armadale, and Mount, Mount Butler was a, a small farming property uh, just to the west or actually southwest of uh, Armadale and the university. And uh, it was initially during 1972 that I got the first hint of something strange going on there um, at, at this little small um, farming property. Um, actually the same day um, actually um, earlier in the day of my own daylight disc sighting back in September of 1972 I had um, a member of the uh, new uh, uh, psychic research society that was uh, had begun on the campus you know a lot of different clubs and groups and that kind of stuff that were covering all sorts of things and, and uh, a number of faculty members uh, formed a uh, psychic phenomena research group mainly operating out of the um, rural science and uh, psychology department actually so, so that was a bit unusual and uh, I got sort of roped into being chairman of the so-called ghost and poltergeist subcommittee 
and I, I was happy to do that because uh, back in those days, um, 73, 75, um, pretty much uh, there wasn't this um, kind of strong uh, belief or linkage in uh, connection between UFOs and the paranormal or psychic phenomena, that kind of stuff. And, uh, so uh, most of the serious kind of paranormal investigators didn't see a connection, but it was uh, by 1975, and that's uh, a few years after all this sort of played out up in New England, uh, uh, Jacques Lee was writing books like um, The Invisible College, or it came out as a paperback called UFOs, The Psychic Solution. And he was basically demonstrating back then that there was a, a very weird kind of aspect to the whole UFO phenomenon. It wasn't just nuts and bolts. Um, craft and that kind of stuff, there was a, a real unusual sort of array of, um, uh, of strange phenomena that, for want of a better word, would fit into the paranormal. And uh, it was on the same day as my own daylight uh, uh, UFO sighting uh, on the campus, and I had that around about sunset or near sunset, but earlier in the day I was approached by a, a member of the, um, the group um, who knew that I was chairman of the Ghost and Poltergeist subcommittee. <laughs> And he tells me, um, oh, something pretty weird happened out at a place called Mount Butler. I didn't know where Mount Butler was at that stage. I certainly found out pretty quickly. But apparently um, on the campus, or sorry, on, the, on this property, and I'll just read you very quickly from a, an account I've got here. Um, um, yeah. yeah. Early on the same day as my sighting, a student told me of some unusual events that occurred about 3 a.m. that morning on a property to the west of Armadale, Mount Butler, and apparently involved a bizarre apparition looking like a monk in a shroud. The student was acquainted with me through meetings of the fledgling University Psychic Phenomena Society. Uh, later, uh, you know, I, I started to uh, explore what was going on out there, and uh, if people go to my um, uh, blog site, which is theozfiles.blogspot.com, and check out a an article there dated the, um, uh, the May 20th, 2021. There's a, there's a post there called Experiencing UFO and UAP Hot Zones, Mount Butler, Turingham and the Skimwalker Beat. And in there I explore the similarities between what's happening on Skimwalker Ranch, what, what happened at Mount Butler and at Turingham, particularly during the 70s. Um, now these areas sort of run hot and cold, but certainly during the the early part, middle of uh, the 1970s, it was running red hot and it was really quite a, a strange sort of situation. But essentially what took place, um, um, yeah, uh, get to it. Um, yeah, one of the students, um, I, yeah, yeah, during the early morning darkness on September 15th, 1972, same day as my sighting, three university students uh, were they were staying on this property at Mount Butler, and they were just uh, talking and um, listening to music, um, and they heard a commotion amongst the farm animals outside, and one of them went outside to investigate. What he saw caused him to call to the others, uh, come outside quickly. There, floating in a semicircle near the house was like a, a monk-like apparition, like a uh, classic sort of monk in a long robe with a dark void face. No limbs noticed, the black void was present where the face would have been. 
one of the students, Greg, apparently made a sudden move and the other two thought they saw the apparition vanish in a flash of light. And it was their impression that this flash of light traveled towards Greg and entered him at chest height. Puzzled, the two men went over to Greg and found him in a much distressed state. He was shaking almost uncontrollably and was inarticulate except for garbled attempts to convey that he felt really sick inside. Um, his friends helped him inside. He, he stayed in much the same condition until they ventured outside again. Two of the farm horses galloped up to meet them, and one of them was a favourite of Greg's, uh, came up to him and the other two students, and then they thought that they saw a flash of light leave Greg, enter the horse, and then leave it. So I'm telling you, this is pretty weird. Um, and, and then it, it, it entered the horse and then left it, dissipating into the, not, uh, into the darkness. The horse reared up and fled away. The two men now found that Greg was no longer distressed. Um, the two friends came to think that the apparition was the spirit of Greg's father who had died a few months earlier and it had possessed him. Now, whatever the explanation, my investigation at the time made me feel that the students had had a pretty genuinely unsettling experience. So, um, now I interviewed them all to get, to get an idea of what was going on, but um, Graham, another student who started living on the property in 1973, he began to see strange uh, sights on, in the area, particularly since he was starting to finish lakes. He was working as a cleaner in town. And during 1973, he had, he had at least eight UFO sightings. Now, now, most people think, you know, if you, if you have regular UFO sightings, you're not very reliable or whatever, or you might be seeing things. But uh, um, back in those days, that, that was kind of the general attitude. But uh, there were a number of sightings that he had, which... Uh, uh, sort of allowed me to, to authenticate the fact that he was having some genuine experiences. And um, sort of, uh, just to describe it, sort of one of them, March 73, is coming home from the university about 1.30 in the morning after completing a radio program on the student radio network. And he drove out of town along the Bandara Road, turned to the left onto the road that eventually leads out toward Mount Butler just as he passed the University Ionosphere Research Station, um, that was kind of like a, a huge grid of metal poles with wires attached and what they were doing, the university was conducting ionosphere, uh, the um, bouncing radio waves at a certain frequency off the ionosphere um, and they were just studying uh, basically the ionosphere. And um, he stopped to answer a call of nature I was just sort of looking up in the sky and then I noticed that the sky was sort of shifting about five or six lights and they were just sort of moving slowly in a curve formation like five lights in an arc. And they were only sort of only fractionally moving and they moved very slow for about five minutes and all of a sudden they just sort of all slid around out, out of the arc and into a straight line and they all just went uh, and accelerated rapidly towards the south. Now the thing is, um, I was in contact with the Sydney group, or a Sydney group, that had logged a report from Roselle in New South Wales, that's in suburban Sydney, and on the um, uh, 24th of March 1973, at about 1, 1.30 in the morning, there was a sighting of five flat yellow lights travelling in a loose V or R formation moving quickly from south to north. Now this this wasn't publicised, this report, and it only 
came to my notice because I was familiar with the group director and all that kind of stuff and was receiving that kind of information. So Graeme, back in your Armadale at Mount Butler, certainly wouldn't have been aware of that report. And, and yet, it, given the fact that it was late in March 73 and his sighting was late in March 73, around about the same time, um, 1, 1.30am in the morning, uh, involved uh, about five uh, lights in the sky and, and moving in a an arc kind of thing, uh, there was a lot of correlation. So that provided me with a kind of a correlation that, yeah, okay, the, uh, at least one of his sightings been possibly verified by somebody else or somebody seeing something very similar. So uh, I started to pay a bit more attention to his reports. And um, there were on the property at Mount Butler, and he got he started staying there for, uh, for a period of time. Um, there were a number of different objects, golden balls of light that he called plasma balls, plasmic balls, and then there were um, these were brought amongst the treetops, and there were green lights as well, um, all sorts of things that were seen, and um, uh, floating balls of light. Uh, but the most spectacular sighting he had um, was during early October 1973. Now, once again, he's returning home early morning uh, from his cleaning job. He's on the dirt road opposite the research station in receiver again. Um, and then right in the middle of the windscreen, it just seemed to, an object seemed to float up. And I'm quoting from his description, I stopped the car immediately, this thing, best I can describe it was like a cigar or like a French loaf. It was fairly regular in shape, except it was sort of tapered at the ends. And on each end of it, there seemed to be type of yellow light, but one end was sort of greeny and the other end was red and the middle seemed to be the same yellow, it didn't seem to be very far away. Uh, in fact, this thing was so close that it, looked, it took up the entire width of the road and it was certainly below tree, tree height level, uh, top of the tree, so it was very low and very close and uh, directly in front of him. And uh, um, he had no impression of movement. Or sound, he just watched it for about 10 or 15 seconds and it seemed to be orientated in a kind of a, an oblique angle like this. Then it rotated itself um, in front of him four times and then seemed to then kick off straight like that and disappeared into the night. So here's this thing that was massive size directly in front of him um, doing some unusual manoeuvres. Um, that, uh, that was sort of kind of startling. So if people go and look at that link, um, it's, I've got pictures there or photographs that I took with him uh, on the site and you get an impression of how big the object was. So um, it's pretty substantial size. And there are all sorts of other things that occurred. Now this starts to make it sound a little bit like uh, um, the um, Skimwalker Ranch and other locations. There were uh, like earth energy type episodes that I called it at the time. They even had an episode which was quite bizarre where they called it the strangest day when the mountain the mountain itself spoke. That's what they, they described it as pretty weird. It is strange. That, yeah, a distinct humming turned into a bush chant. There was all this sort of um, all these sort of natural kind of noises starting to amplify and it got into such a huge, massive cacophony of sound uh, and, it, and it seemed to have a um, it seemed to give everybody a state of euphoria and then it 
it, it, it was like to them, it was like the hillside was singing in a choir. Others felt it was like a sense of communication. And they came down off the mountainside and returned to the barn area. And just as they got to the, to the barn area, they looked around and they saw 10 falling stars shooting across the evening sky. And uh, they concluded uh, we just went up to see the sunset like we normally do. And the mountain spoke to us. It was like a sense of humming, a sense of power manifesting itself in, in noise. And then it changed from a, a sort of familiar noise, like a generator noise, or more sort of human, more vocal noise, a wash of sound. The other was, was more uh, crudely primitive. Uh, to the group, uh, uh, it was uh, distinctly far stranger than typical Australian bush hum, like cicadas and other sources of bush noise. And other people reported phenomena like the presence of space or time warps on the property where a particular locality uh, would change significantly in perspective. Some areas of landscape seemed to quiver as if it seemed to want to shift around and there was uh, uh, shifting one's location would return uh, the effect to normal. So you'd be looking at a location and it appeared to shift and shimmer, you'd moved and then it would just sort of return back to its natural appearance. Um, so, it, 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 you know, for want of a better word, you know, people were thinking of like a window at that time. This, this was kind of like what um, John Keel and others, uh, for those that are familiar with him, was describing like they used to call them window areas. Now, um, this is the kind of stuff that goes on in a lot of different locations. Uh, particularly best known, I guess, through the Skinwalker Ranch, that kind of stuff. But areas around the Blue Mountains, near Sydney, Kempsey, Coonabarabran, St George in Queensland, Tully, Litchville, Yuchuka down near the Murray, uh, in uh, New South Wales, Victoria border, um, Wycliffe Wells, the Grampians, Toowoomba. Um, but none of those came close to what the intensity of what I was experiencing, which I described previously as Turing that was full on night after night. And, uh, that, that's what I call a very intense sort of hot zone. And to summarise it, we had uh, agile nocturnal lights, possible landing events, aerial objects seen, unusual auditory phenomena, phantom truck noises. Uh, whenever those occur, we'd often get it associated with clocks stopping, electric clock stopping, and that kind of stuff. There were visionary experiences like dreams and close-up encounters, that, that kind of stuff. Um, all sorts of things. Uh, some of these things were photographed um, and uh, a lot of it was uh, personally witnessed by myself and others that I dragged up from the university as well. That so was incredible. It was, a, it was a pretty crazy time. Love for it to happen again with that kind of attention. <laughs> but uh, we, we just got lucky. It was just really, really full on. Uh, the trouble with that area was that um, it was going through a bit of a transition. A lot of uh, was the period of the, the early 70s and a lot of, uh, I guess, people getting into hippie communes and that kind of stuff and a lot of properties were being bought up from some of the traditional owners. And so within a decade, the whole dynamic of the um, uh, area had changed and uh, there was only a handful of people uh, that I got became familiar with that, that actually... Um, were still living in the location. I think previously I described the anecdote of rolling up to, uh, uh, this was uh, back around about 2010 or something like that. I roll up to the uh, 
corner store or the, the little store. Uh, not many houses in Sheringham. You blink and you miss it. But I pull up and uh, I go into the corner, into the store and said, oh, anything interesting, unusual, strange happening around here? Which might seem a bit of a weird request. And, oh, no, not around here, mate. The, the, the young lady says to me. And uh, I said, oh, uh, it's interesting. Um, I used to know the original store owner. Um, I mentioned her name. It turned out that this woman talking to me was her daughter and her mum had passed away. And she says, oh, and she said, oh, are you Bill? And, and I said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Bill Chalker. He says, oh, yeah, mum used to talk about you all the time. Because you know, uh, she and I used to sit out the front of the store for all hours of the night, sort of sitting back, sharing a beer or two or whatever, or other drinks, watching the, the lights cavort over the top of Boney Mountain directly in front of us. So we got bored after a while because every time we tried to set up equipment to take photographs or monitor them, these things would just take off and disappear. And, and it seemed to display an evasiveness that went beyond mere chance, like we'd back, you know, we didn't have the kind of equipment you have today, the lightweight stuff, you'd set up a heavy-duty tripod uh, to get rid of camera shake, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, we'd set all that up night after night. It'd be happening in front of us, the local main for, for the mountain was uh, uh, Boney Mountain, called, but I think it was called actually no, Copeland uh, or something of that nature. And um, uh, it would appear, or these lights would appear, travel along a high speed, stop dead on a dime, turn up uh, and go go back and then forward as if they missed something and then it would drop like a stone behind the mountain, that kind of thing. All this kind of thing was happening night after night. Wow. So you get all your gear, you get your gear set up, uh, ready to take photographs and as soon as you do that, it, it's gone. And then it starts playing games behind you. So we'd oh. have to turn the equipment around and, and this would happen so often it just drove us crazy. So a bit really of shake about it. Yeah, but the, 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 the only people that really got decent photos was a local guy who set his camera up on top of the roof of his house. This was very early on, and, and he got some shots of, the, of what was being seen, and, and in some of them there's not so much camera movement, and the, you see a dish-shaped type of object there. And we were seeing lights, seeing, seeing them as lights, we were also seeing them as silver discs, um, that kind of thing. So, uh, um, but the weird, just to give you an idea of how intensely weird it got, um, and again, I encourage people to have a look at that link. Um, just go to my blog site and type in cheering and you'll, you'll find we'll it. I'll just try and find it for them, um, and I'll throw the link up in the chat there. Um, um, if you, just before you um, go on, mate, just want to check your connection there to your phone because um, I think you're just getting a bit of interference there with the audio jack there. I think that's what the noise is. You get a bit of a noise coming through every time you talk. Or it could okay. be that. Or it might be just the, uh, the microphone part. Maybe. Is that any better? That's a lot better. Yeah. But I don't think you want well, to hold your like that. <laughs> no, no, it's called, called a mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, I'll put it up closer for you or something like that. How's that sound? Nah, it's not much better at all. <laughs> we should have stuck to Zoom, bugger the interruptions, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, maybe next time. I'll try and sound a bit better. I've really got to do some work on this here and try and get something that's really yep. uh, efficient. Um, yep, that's it. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask some questions there. So um, these objects sort of things, obviously you, you can't determine or you can't interpret them as um, 
Min Min lights are in the light because like there's probably a bit too much intelligence compared to what other uh, Min Min lights are doing. Well, I, I've spent a lot of time up at Booyah and places like that with the home of the Min Min and all that kind of stuff. And the the, um, the main thing you get about the Min Min lights is that they seem to be very evasive. Like you start to approach them and they just go away, whereas these things would put on a show. <laughs> like yeah. a, as I one of the classic ones as I described was one that went straight across like that, stopped as if it missed something, went up in an arc like that, came back, and then went into the middle position, sat yeah. there, and then dropped like a stone behind the mountain. Now, that, that's not typical Min Min Light type stuff. And plus, we were seeing objects as well, um, and things that seem to appear to be uh, UFO sightings, things that seem to have structure, uh, craft that appeared to be large angular size that would land behind the mountain, um, uh, things that were quite weird, like a, a, fam a little village nearby, these are both very small places, though, just like little small service centres to service the surrounding farm. And on one of those places, uh, it was only a few kilometres away from Kiringham, and I'm talking just one or two kilometres, um, was a place called Dundarabin. There, uh, the locals were also experiencing UFO sightings. Um, so most of the people in that locality uh, were reporting them, but they were very reluctant to report it to anybody like media or anything like that. And the only reason that I was hearing about these reports was that generally I was staying on a property called Mollydale. You won't find Mollydale very well now because a lot of that area has been taken over by a big uh, agricultural conglomerate. Um, but I remember recently going to the Sydney Royal Easter show, this is pre-COVID, and I noticed um, uh, a place, a stand there, a farming stand at the show that's called Mollydale Wool or something like that. And uh, I just sort of asked, um, where are you guys from? He says, oh, we're at a small little property near um, Turingham. And I thought, Turingham? Yeah, and, and, then, and then I sort of asked the question, well, what, do you guys actually live there at Turingham? They said, well, we used to. And I said, well, why are you asking? And I said, uh, are you aware of some of the strange things that happened at Turingham? And then they said, what kind of strange things? And I said, uh, oh, really weird shit, you know, like uh, <laughs> UFOs. And I said, yeah, yeah, you, you were aware of it. And it does keep happening, uh, but very intermittently, not at the same intensity as what was happening during 1973, or as far as we can tell. But, uh, and as I said earlier, the whole dynamic, the whole nature of the community uh, within that area has changed a lot. Um, as I said, uh, the actual property that where most of the action was taking place, at least for me personally, the Mollydale property itself, uh, has been taken over. When I, I last drove up there, um, I drove in up to where the property was, and I, I don't think it was still standing. Uh, at that time, it was up behind the, the local store and up on the hills, so you'd go over the hill, and the whole house was surrounded by a, a big wire fence to keep cattle out of the immediate uh, area, of the, front, uh, the, the immediate perimeter of the house. and. Uh, there was some pretty weird stuff going on. And now, uh, over several months, of, I'm, I'm 
sort of saying I've got reports of about 44 nocturnal light reports and uh, 23 that appeared to be like aerial objects. Uh, there were five clear reports of apparent UFO landings, another uh, 15 that seemed to land, but they were so, a bit further away that we weren't sure what the hell was going on there. Uh, but, but there was also other strange stuff going on, like uh, auditory phenomena, things that we, we christened them phantom truck noises. It was just really weird. And electrical-type clock-stopping instruments in what seemed to be psychic and paranormal events. Now, to give you a, an idea, um, I'm going to describe to you, rather than just rely on memory, I'll tell my original report. Yeah. Uh, what's the headline of that one? So I can just find the link for it. Uh, okay. Um, if you go to... Um, Yeah, it's Thursday, May 20th, 2021, and it's called Experiencing UFO slash UAT Hot Zone. Mount Butler, Tyringham, and the Skinwalker Bleach. So Experiencing UFO slash UFO, UAT Hot Zone. Good from it. Yeah, I'll find it, and then I'll share it to the chat there, so people can go and get straight onto it. Yeah. Now, what I... Um, when I'm referring to hot zones, I mean those areas where there's an extraordinary depth of UFO phenomenon being experienced. But, um, they would also call uh, they would call them UFO flap areas, but they are much more very localised UFO flaps. You know, very small localities. You know, um, only uh, a few square miles or several kilometres uh, square, that kind of thing. Um, and luckily for me, the the first person who reported this was um, uh, a local electronics technician who lived on the property at Mount, at, at, at um, Turingham, and he had heard that there was some weird guy, namely me, at the University of New England, LPH College, that would was interested in UFOs. You could call him and he might look into it. <laughs> and so he contacts me and, and, and he starts talking to me about it. And I said, well, how long ago this start to take place you know, a year or two back and he said no 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 it's happening now every night I said what you know are you serious and I said he said yeah, yeah no it's going on every night and being the usually impoverished university student I didn't have a car at that stage but uh, I, I used to hitchhike up there or he'd go through and pick me up and would go down up together and I'd stay the weekend on the property and uh, he'd lend me his ute and I'd drive around the whole area all night you know like they'd Everybody in the area generally went to sleep around about 10 o'clock at night. You know, it was like a, uh, you know, like a cemetery at night. You know, very, very little activity because mostly farming people. Um, but some pretty weird stuff happened after 10. <laughs> I can tell you that from personal experience. Um, and uh, the um, just to give you an idea of it. Um, now, for those that. Uh, uh, kind of serious UFO investigators, this kind of thing is probably not going to be that unusual to them. You know, like I've encountered this kind of stuff very frequently in a lot of different localities around Australia, worldwide, in fact, all sorts of different flap areas. Um, but for me, this has a lot of personal interest because, you know, I, I was there, you know, I was literally experiencing all this kind of stuff myself. And uh, um, here we go. Just trying to get to the account of the weirdest night. 
answer <laughs> from you personally. It's a fairly detailed account. I put a lot of um, stuff into this account. Um, um, yeah, there's a lot, a lot to read there, but uh, I'll just go through one account. Um, yeah, one of the most extraordinary nights for me personally in the Turingham flat uh, took place on August 23rd, 1973. Uh, at about midnight on the Mollydale property. Now, it was my habit that I'd, he knew I'd borrow his, his ute and I'd, I'd often go for a drive roaming around the valley. And one of my rules was that I'd never tell anybody what I personally experienced. I kept it all to myself. I was just like a, a human vacuum cleaner. I just wanted to know what other people saw and I didn't want to tell them what I saw because I thought it might influence what they told me. So I kept, I kept a log of everything that was happening. Um, now, at about midnight, and as I described earlier, the property itself had a, uh, the house had a, a big wire fence about 10 feet high uh, with a, a gate, uh, mainly to keep the livestock away from the house. And I walked up to near the gate, and uh, I'm thinking, uh, uh, I might take a drive, but then I'm thinking, no, I get up, and this is about midnight. I noticed the bright white light in the south-south-east between the trees. And if you look at a bright light at night long enough, you get what's called scintillation. Um, and, and you can get this autokinesis effect where you get movement. But this was a quite a substantial light. It seemed to be coming through the trees. It seemed to be like a beam of light coming down between the, through the trees and shining onto the house. Look, look back to the house, I could see that the whole house was lit up. I thought, well, what, what's going on there? <coughs> but <clears throat> and then the light and the beam suddenly disappeared at about quarter past midnight. A dull silvery object, the angular size, you can make it out to be a, like a silvery disc, passed overhead from the south to east, from, from near where the, the light had been amongst the trees, it passed over, uh, and then um, um, it, it, it just seemed to be a consistent solid body, about three quarters of an inch at arm's length. So that's pretty big. Um, and it certainly wasn't a satellite, too big to be a satellite, and moving a lot faster than Skylab. That was prevalent at the time. And, and I'd seen Skylab pass over several times from that location, you know, and got used to a lot of the stuff that we would So it was a lot bigger than Skylab. But, um, a few minutes later, uh, while standing at the wire house gate, um, and if you read this new book um, out of um, George Knapp and Cole Kellner and uh, James Lukatsky called Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, brand new book, you can get it as an e-book if you want to read it quickly. It tells what the Defence Intelligence Agency did at Skinwalker Ranch. and. Uh, uh, this uh, one of the things that happened with some of the defence intelligence agency thing had me thinking straight away of this this event. Uh, I'm standing at the gate thinking, do I go for a drive? Anyway, I experienced this 
localised body of cold air, I stepped back two or three feet and it was back into the warmer air I'd been in. I was soon able to determine that this distinct body of cold air was of a quite definite and rigid confined volume. It appeared quite suddenly and opportunistic very quickly. What it was like, it was like a, a column of cold air, like a cylinder, just right near the gate. I think I could touch it and feel it and, and, and work out its dimension. I thought this is pretty weird. You know, little drafts of air don't get that localised and, and, and solid like that. It was really, really quite strange. Anyway, I'm starting to think, yeah, yeah, getting pretty weird. Maybe I'm a bit too tired to go for a drive. Pick up the local neighbourhood. So I, I start to put this down to, you know, maybe maybe I'm a bit tired. Anyway, and then so I decided to go to sleep. And this is about uh, about 12.40. After about 10 or 20 minutes, I'd gone to sleep at the back of the house and worried um, forward the uh, electronics technician on the property. He starts to hear a weird whirring noise like the other noises that we christened phantom truck noises and um, coming from about 400 yards away from the house in the direction of the water pump uh, and that, that was a scene of multiple witness sightings of two oblong lights a few weeks earlier and we noticed that the uh, electric, he noticed that the electric clock um, was about 11.40 and that it cut out uh, apparently, for some unknown reason, it was running an hour slow. So the time, actual time was about 12.50, 1am. Uh, now, the noise consisted of a fluttering harmonic pitch lasting for about 20 minutes and increasing and decreasing in revs associated with the distance. It had about, was about 400 cycles a second, similar to a generator. And as the pitch, the pitch, the pitch of the noise increased, um, the sound softened, and, and it seemed as though this, the noise was moving around, and then it got really annoyingly loud uh, to the point where Warwick, uh, the noise started to frighten him. You know, it was getting so close, and um, it sounded as though it was moving around about 400 yards away or about half a mile away thought it was a truck at first, but there were no echo effects, and we got pretty used to trucks passing through the area, you could easily distinguish from these noises. And quite often, a lot of the, the so-called fan and truck noises sounded like a swarm of buzzing bees, that kind of thing, you know, and this has been widely reported in a lot of locations. Anyway, and at that point, just as the thing was getting really loud, um, the clock, the electric clock, um, and then he listens for another 15 or 20 minutes and saw nothing. Uh, as he was about to get up and get me to wake me up, uh, the noise died away. Now, Warwick's wife, um, uh, Sandra, had been a little sick with the flu at the time and earlier in the night she experienced some sort of strange dream impression, the likes of which she had never had before. And even when the flap was at its height, She'd never had any conscious inclination of such a mental impression, but um, you know, um, we're sitting there around the breakfast table and she wasn't feeling that well, and, and uh, Warwick's there baiting her and saying, tell Bill about your dream, tell Bill about your dream. He doesn't want to know about my bloody dreams. And, and uh, he 
says, you know, just tell him, tell him. And so she tells, tells me, and it, and it, it occurred at, at about the same time I was actually outside in reality, uh, experiencing the cold column of air and observing the light and the silvery objects that I described earlier, i.e. about midnight. Sandra was half awake, feeling listless. And then she saw in her mind's eyes, she thought, the impression of a, a like a transparent disc with people inside, looking like it was in the negative, and, and a classic edge-on disc shape. And this thing seemed to be about 10 feet in diameter, and she had the impression that it had little um, structural material involved in the object, there were two or more occupants, apparently at work, comfortably inside the transparent disc. Now, she said she first saw the disc near the water tank, quite close to where I was in reality. Uh, it followed the old tree line of the grass, travelling about 10 feet above the ground, finally disappearing over the hills to the south southeast. Now, she said that the impression was really vivid, but she didn't think there was much value in the um, reporting her dreams. And, I, and I, I have a sketch there that I did showing the locations all the events and the correlations, the locations with it. So it was kind of like a shared vision. She's having a vision um, and I'm outside in reality experiencing, seeing this and that kind of stuff. So pretty weird. Anyway, at about 4 a.m. I was woken up by a constant droning noise, like a plane passing nearby at low altitude, but no echo effects. Uh, and uh, um, Another a lady staying there also heard it, and I, I couldn't work out what it was. But I went outside to figure out what it was, and it got really intense droning away above me. And, and at that point, it just seemed to dissipate. So I couldn't figure out what, what the hell it was. But Warwick said, when I mentioned, uh, I casually mentioned that part of it that, uh, uh, that, uh, I heard the truck noise, and Warwick said that the electric clock had stopped at around about 3:20 in the morning. So, uh, you know, he thought thought that uh, um, he thought he could hear the draining noise a little bit, but uh, he he listened to it from the bedroom where I was, as I was actually outside, uh, trying to witness it and, and pick up where it was coming from. Anyway. That, that's just kind of typical of, of some of the things that happened there. There were uh, multiple witness events and um, all sorts of apparitional phenomena, that, that kind of stuff, weird lights, that kind of stuff. So um, when um, the Skinwalker Ranch came into popular vogue a decade or two back, uh, for me, when I listened to what was being described happening on the property, it was like deja vu to me, you know, like, oh yeah, <laughs> that sounds awfully familiar. And when you, if you take the trouble to read the news, um, Skinwalker uh, at the Pentagon book that's just been published this year, and there's another article I did recently, um, which you can find called um, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, and it's strange uh, correlates with cases from the Oz files. In there, I described the comparisons between what the Defence Intelligence Agency experienced when they went to the Skinwalker Ranch and what I experienced with others at Turingham back in the 70s. So 
there's a lot of interesting correlations there that need to be looked at. So I agree with people like Dr. James Lukatsky that, yeah, I agree with Dr. James Lukatsky that we should be looking at UFOs and paranormal. <laughs> I just got a bit of an interruption here at the moment, I've got a little visitor. So come here, can you say hello? <laughs> you don't want to say hello? Hello. Can you say hello to hello. Bill? <laughs> no, I've been all shy. <laughs> so, this is my little girl, Rachel. Say hello. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> She's been very shy. <laughs> all right, Miss, you going to go back out? Thank you. You close the door. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, going on all that with the, um, like, you know, I got a bit of a weird aspect between, like, the paranormal thing and as well as the UFO thing. Have you guys, like, over the years of your research that determined there's any some sort of connection between the paranormal and the UFO world? Uh, to me, there's absolutely no doubt that there is some correlation going on there. Uh, exactly what it all means, uh, uh, God, yeah, I'd love to know. Uh, but but it, when you get into these very intense UFO flaps, particularly localised ones in small, remote communities, this kind of stuff go, uh, is quite weird. Uh, just to, to give you an example of another one, just at Turingham during 73, this one is seriously weird. Um, we're, um, what have we got here? Uh, it kind of um, really goes to the heart of it in many ways. Um, I'll leave people to read the account um, there um, in more detail, but there's so many of them. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
Okay. Um, right. Now, the following incident seems to be more pertinent to the UFO activity unravelling around Turing and Starbuck in South Africa. Uh, there was a family there that were originally living in Sydney um, and um, the wife, um, their um, Dorothy, kept having these unfathomable preoccupations with daydreams of seeing transparent people just living in Sydney and keep seeing this daydream or experiencing this daydream of seeing transparent people just flying across the sky. And these seemed to come in unrelated impressions, often quite vivid. She had no explanation of these dream impressions. Uh, well, she gave next to no thought about UFOs or, or all that kind of stuff. That, that sort of stuff didn't interest her. Anyway, um, she would often look outside her window at a Sydney residence dreaming, and she'd get the impressions of a country scene, grass bushland, uh, this only occurred when she used to look out a northern window and she'd see what it looked like to her were, not UFOs, she'd interpret them like missiles soaring, dipping across the sky. Um, and she, did, she couldn't figure out what, what was the point of this, you know, this daydream she kept having looking at, at, at she was looking out this window and seeing a country scene, grass, bushland. Anyway, soon after, near the end of 1972, a family moved from Sydney Cockatoo Creek, which is just to the north of Turingham, very close. And her husband start, soon starts making extensions to the house and had built it on a new kitchen on the northern side of the house. Just after these extensions were completed, Dorothy's standing at the kitchen window facing north and she, and she suddenly realises that this is the same country scene that she had often seen in her Sydney suburban daydreams, um, but without the missile. This scared her a little bit, and at the same time, she, she got the impression that maybe this was like something like this was going to happen in the local area, that the silver, silver missile would start turning up. Yeah, this was okay. about This was about five or six months before the whole area became besieged by, inverted commas, unknown missiles or UFOs, whatever you want to call them. So, yeah. um, so that's how weird it can get. Um, like... Uh, that to me is a fairly strong precognitive uh, kind of dream impression that relates to the location. That they were besieged by balls of light, and uh, this auditory bees buzzing around the, loca the locality and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't just Turingham itself; it was the whole immediate area having all this strange stuff going on. Um, and the only reason they were telling me about it was that um, they trusted uh, Warwick, the electronics technician, and they would talk to him and he would pass it on to me with their permission and, uh, and I'd go and interview them. Um, and I uh, kept it all pretty close to the chest and trying to figure out what's going on. And there were so many of these cases going on. <laughs> the local group in Sydney started to hear about this and uh, they contacted me and said, oh, we'd love to come up and check it out. And I said, yeah, sure, come on up. And this is how I met a dear friend of mine who's now passed away, but uh, uh, David Bushing, and he was ex-SAS, um, so a very tough guy. And um, 
uh, and the team turns up and uh, I thought really professional looking and all that kind of stuff. Pull back the canvas of the station wagon and it's half full of Coca-Cola bottles. <laughs> and this was David's one vice. He'd drink so much Coca-Cola. But he and I got on like a house on fire and we spent a lot of time together in Turingham and one of the um, um, places that was really quite strange is, is another correlation to an event that the defence intelligence agencies that went to the Skinwalker Ranch had. Uh, they talked about experiencing this incredibly intense fear sensation at a particular location. Now, David and I had gone out to the back of Turingham to investigate a UFO sighting about 10 o'clock at night. And as I said previously, most people in the area would go to sleep by that time. But we had walkie-talkie kind of things going, contact with Warwick back at the property. And he, he would contact the local property owner that were outside the, of his property um, because we thought we could see this weird light that it was hovering and putting down a kind of a beam of light and a domed area of illumination on the ground. And um, the property owner answered Warwick and uh, said, no, 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 all the lights are out here. And he switches the light on and we could see where the light was, but this wasn't what we were looking at. Anyway, another light appeared on, uh, on the hillside just to the, uh, the rear of the property and Warwick and I, no, sorry, um, David pushing and I decide we're gonna go up the hill we saw this light go down behind the hill. We thought, we're going to go up and check that out. And so we're, we're on foot, and uh, David's wife back in the car, Penny, and uh, we're heading up the hill. And we're just getting up towards the top of the hill where we're getting close to where we have a clear view of what's over the hill. And then we both kind of looked at each other suddenly. We both, as it turned out, simultaneously had this really severe, intense, overwhelming sense of fear. Now, we're looking at each other thinking, what's happening? And, and David you know, mentioned that he was ex-SAS, so very tough dude, not prone to being scared. I wasn't either. I got pretty familiar with the locality, you know, thought I knew everything, all the bush noises going on and whatever. But both of us had this really overpowering sense of dread Fear. This is the same thing that the Defence Intelligence Agency guys that were on the Skinwalker Ranch reportedly experienced as well. Um, so there was a lot of correlations going on. You know, we're talking decades apart, uh, and the other side of the world. Um, and uh, Dave and I looked at this, and, 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 and we're thinking, "What are you feeling?" And he says, "Well, I'll tell you the truth, Bill, I'm scared shitless." You know, <laughs> and you know. And I said, I feel the same. Do you think we we better go? We'll, we'll, we'll go back down the hill. I think something doesn't want us to go over the hill. Anyway, we, we, we go back to the car. And then as we go down the hill, the feeling dissipates. We thought, fuck it, this. We're going back up the hill. And so um, after about five minutes, we go back up the hill and we don't experience anything. Thinking, What's going on? You know, we walked around location, went over the hill, nothing there. So, um, that's the kind of thing. There was just so many things going on during that one year at Turingham. It was just remarkable. I write about it a bit in, in uh, the Oz Files, the book that I published back in '96. So, um, yeah, uh, that kind of area is 
I think, like the kind of thing that researchers out in the field should jump on when they learn about it. Um, if anybody out there has come across that kind of thing happening in Australia, I'd love to hear about it. So. Yeah, it's not the first time I've actually heard of people um, experiencing this tremendous fear that deters them from continuing on. Um, like there's uh, one story I was listening to on a program that I listened to where he's on a farm property and he had to go down, check the dam or check the cattle or something like that. I can't remember the full story to it, but as he was approaching down towards the water's edge of where one of the dams were, he kept gaining this fear of uncertainty. Next minute, like, it sort of turned into fear. And then as he kept going, like, it just turned into absolute terror that he had to turn around and go away. Like, and then the same thing, like, it sort of dissipates as he got further and further away. Um, like, but by the time like, he was too scared to go back down there by himself anyway, so he was like, nah, <laughs> I'll wait till tomorrow to go back down there. And it, he reckons he went down next morning down to the dam there and there was like a depression in the grass near the, near the dam there. So I, it sort of makes you wonder, like, how can they do something like this to deter you from coming any closer to where they're doing whatever they're doing? Yeah, a lot of people kind of describe like infrasound or whatever that, that sort of that can be beamed into a person's sort of personal space and cause them to have irrational fear and that kind of stuff. And obviously, there's uh, military applications there. Well and truly, you know, if you can scare your enemy away, what better thing to do than having to engage with them and fight with them, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Uh, but you know, we certainly had no like, uh, feelings that there was the military or whatever wandering around the area this remote farming community and you don't expect military activities um, you know in this sort of dairy territory um, and uh, cattle farms and all that kind of stuff you know particularly at 10 o'clock at night you know and I'd been there off and on uh, for months so uh, knew the area quite well uh, and certainly didn't experience anything just give um, I'll just describe another case um, um. Just while you're trying to find that, what are your thoughts on the telekinesis side of things? Like, like people report that their um, their beings or where they might be um, are experienced with telekinesis. Yeah, telekinesis. Or yeah. Um, any thoughts on that? Where, by telekinesis, you mean what the lifting of, of oh, things? That's probably yeah, that's probably the one. Tele telepathy. That's the one I'm thinking of. Telepathy. Telepathy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, there are literally thousands of entity cases, you know, and I'm not just I'm not sort of dealing with abduction cases. That's a separate category in the sense that there are literally thousands of those cases as well. But separately, just dealing with entity cases uh, in association with UFOs and that kind of thing. Uh, Telepathy seems to be the name of the game, or what we interpret as telepathy. Um, not a great deal of speech going on, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of um, uh, correlations to that kind of thing. So, um, um, yeah, telepathy is quite common. Yeah. yeah I, I gave I, I gave a lecture um, or a series of lectures on the paranormal connection. Um, and that seemed to be so popular. I was asked to do it three or four times in one year. Um, and the lectures just got bigger and bigger uh, because there's so much different content. Um, and the, the research into this aspect has been going on for literally decades. It's nothing new. Uh, we were looking at it 
during the 70s. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, there was this paranormal connection evident back in the 50s, the 40s. Um, uh, I think uh, various researchers have said even Kenneth Arnold, the guy that kicked off the whole flying saucer thing back in 1947, he had strange paranormal type of events taking place that seemed to follow him home. And, uh, visitor. Hang on. Hey. Hang on. Sorry, mate. We've got another visitor. Hey. I hear a noise in the snake cage. I hear a noise in the snake cage. Just give me a minute there, guys. I'm going to sort these children out and uh, <laughs> back in a minute. Um, you can continue on there, Bill. I can still hear you. Mate, I'll, keep, so. I'll keep talking. Yeah, you keep yep. talking. <laughs> yeah. You keep yourself engaged. I'll take the show over. Yeah. Yeah. The um, One of the interesting cases here um, was that um, at Nora Head on the central coast, um, there was a location called Soldiers Point. And during 1975, there were, uh, was a young teenage group that um, three guys and a girl camping on the, on the local beach at Soldiers Point. And they had um, uh, started a fire and to keep the fire going, uh, two of the blokes had gone uh, into a ravine near where they were camping, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, retrieved wood from the ravine. And then they brought this wood back and started pouring on, onto the fire. And as soon as the fire took off, uh, that's when things got seriously weird. Um, now, uh, all three of the men, uh, um, I said there were three men, three young men and, and, and a young lady. Um, and they were there on a spearfishing trip. And they were just um, aware that out of that ravine, at least the, the men were aware, um, that there were these small balls of light coming out of the ravine and approaching them. Now, the problem with this is uh, we appear to have selective perception because uh, uh, the girl never uh, saw anything. What she witnessed was the three young men absolutely terrified by whatever they were experiencing. And the two men that had gone down into the ravine seemed to be the main target of these balls of light. And it appeared as though these balls were coming out of the ravine and proceeding to attack um, the two men that had gone down into the ravine that collected the wood for the fire. And this went on for uh, many minutes. Uh, and and it, the, these small objects, like orbs, that had sort of things that looked like little rotating uh, wings or propellers inside them. And they kept coming and swarming. Uh, and, and bear in mind, this was 1975, um, long before drones and all that kind of stuff. And it was seriously weird. Now, the, the other gentleman, hello, the, the other gentleman uh, had... Uh, um, Why are you talking to me? Why are you talking to me? Bill, say hello, Bill. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Rogue Charlie, so they can go to bed. It's not bedtime. Let's go. Thank you. Yeah, so... Um, oh, here we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, good night. <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, Mike. Continue. Been there, done that. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but a little while ago. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm talking about uh, uh, events that are nor ahead in the Central Coast that involve collective perception and an attacking light, uh, swarm of lights. It was like this big light had come out of out of the, a ravine at Soldiers Point at Nora Head, and there were three young men and a young woman uh, there on a spearfishing trip, uh, camping there. And they got this material out of the ravine, and uh, or, or two of the men had uh, to keep the fire going, and it appeared that this ball of light had come out of the uh, ravine, and out of that larger ball of light, two smaller objects would come and attack the two men, particularly the two men that had gone down in the ravine to uh, retrieve this, this wood for the fire. Uh, the other man that hadn't gone down in the ravine, he could see these things coming out of this object and swarming and attacking the other two men. But the weird thing was the girl, she couldn't see anything. She could only witness what was obvious terror on the part of the young bloke. Now, now back in the day and still today, of course, guys don't like to show too much fear in front of young women that are trying to impress, you know. But yeah. These guys were so terrified. They were literally terrified. They were using sticks to try and fight off this swarm of orb-type things that seemed to be attacking them. Now, um, these things would eventually would disappear and the ball would go back down in the ravine and the group ended up fleeing from the locality and in the middle of the night reporting it to the police. Now, you don't do that kind of stuff uh, if you're a young teenager and start blubbering on about uh, um, a ghost light or a flying saucer was attacking you in the middle of the night. You know? But the young girl couldn't couldn't verify that. She just observed the fear of the men, and the yep. police, the police were sufficiently convinced that something weird was going on. Uh, they they weren't on drugs, they weren't drunk or anything like that, um, and they were so terrified that uh, it took a lot for them to uh, uh, return to the site the next day. The police called my friend David Bushy, um, and they went to the location with the police and the, and, and the group of young men uh, very reluctantly uh, and describe what had occurred, but they would not go anywhere near the ravine. Uh, they were too frightened. And uh, what was not uh, known at the time was that in 1973, uh, this report came out privately to me and I investigated it. Um, uh, a bloke and a lady um, were in a car parked, doing what often happens in a car at night. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, but they were both, or well, one of them was in a uh, in a marriage, so it was kind of like um, something that, that was a bit awkward to report. Um, but they eventually told uh, me about it. Told me about it, and uh, what they 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 saw. Uh, they weren't doing anything too too too. Devilish would be. Uh, um, they observed the street lights flickering. And this is 1973, and it was Nora Head, 
same location as this thing in 1975. And neither party knew anything about each other. Anyway, the couple in the car were looking at what's causing the streetlight flickering, and then um, they observed an object come up behind the hill out of the bushland, and out of that object, this was a very large object, and it started firing out these balls of light uh, out of the object. And it, uh, the, the bloke would, wow, you know, he wanted to go closer, and she's saying, no, 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 we're not going closer. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, let's just be close. So he tries to start the car, the car won't start. He's trying to start the car, it still won't start. And at that point, terror takes over and they, they're having mixed feelings. They want to, they want to get out of there. And then the, um, the object uh, moves back into the, the bushland and disappears. Um, but um, then they try to start the car and the car started straight away. So, um, it's interesting to have that correlation of the large and the small at this one small locality at Nora Head. Um, and uh, that was a really interesting uh, sort of double barrel type of encounter situation of a large object or a larger object issuing smaller objects. Um, and in the case in 1975 with the spearfishing group, um, a much smaller main object with smaller objects coming out of it. Um, so it's an interesting correlation. So the UFO phenomenon is pretty complicated. Yeah, not, absolutely. Not straightforward. Yeah. So, so with like, those um, guys that were getting attacked by these objects, so like were they like physically getting attacked by these things, or is it more like just like you know buzzing around their heads, like sort of like to try and ward them away? Yeah, more more like more like the latter that it was sort of buzzing around. They they didn't experience any physical um, damage to themselves. But it was certainly worrying them, you know, like it, it really frightened the hell of them, so much so that they were, they were really in fear and uh, uh, they were virtually crying when they reported it to, to the police. They had so much fear and they very reluctantly went back to the location. And these, these are blokes about between 16 and 18. They're not going to put on that kind of performance for a, particularly in front of a, of a girl that was there, yeah. <laughs> or the police, you know. Um, but the police were sufficiently impressed with their apparent terror that they thought will pass this on to the UFO group and that's when they pass it on on to uh, um, my friend David Bushing you know and, and that period was a, in 75 was a period that we were actually on standby we'd be predicted that there was going to be an outbreak of cases we weren't sure where and I had my little airplane ticket ready to take off to Turingham uh, uh, and the North Coast in New England because I was expecting something to happen and sure enough it did um, and uh, um, and that predictability continued through to about 1978 and then it seemed to peter out and got very hard to predict after that which was most unfortunate but there seemed to be this regular cycle of events going on so yeah uh, interesting wow. time. Yeah, I just want to um, bounce back to your experience there at Mount Butler. There, like, um, what were your what's going through your head there when you were sort of seeing this object above the house, sort of thing going on, and like, oh, that, that, what was you? That what was were you a, thinking? That wasn't Mount Butler. That oh, was Mount Butler. Sorry. Oh, sorry, Durringham. Durringham. Um, what's going through my head? Uh, well, I, I'm I'm wanting to know what it was. You know, like, uh, um, it. 
it didn't frighten me at the time. I was just sort of thinking there's something there, something there, but then it goes away. Were you like thinking of like any concern for like the um, the people in the house or anything like that? Like, um... uh, not really. Um, and what Warwick, being an electronics technician, he kind of felt that it, it was, uh, um, you know, he thought maybe it was something that he was doing. Like he was playing around. He was like a radio ham as well, and and was um, excuse me, um, um, basically using electronic equipment, you know, and broadcasting on different frequencies. And thought, well, maybe this attracted them, but you know, it doesn't seem likely. Uh, but there were all sorts of different speculations as to why the events were were happening there. But but uh, but I was more interested in trying to get a documentation of what was actually happening without influencing other people and, and also trying to drag down other students and faculty members and various debunkers and skeptics to the location so they would uh, witness it themselves and one, one of the most interesting ones and I won't give too much details because I don't want to embarrass the person <laughs> but yeah, this is a very sceptical person at a high academic level Curious about Bill and his UFOs at Birmingham, so he comes with me, and we're standing there in front of the corner store, and, and then the display starts, and all these vague objects going on, and he's looking at it, and he just seemed to be in a state of mild shock, I think, and he, he turns around and says, "Hmm, very interesting. <laughs> yeah." I'll be off now. <laughs> and he gets into his car and drives back to Armadale. I thought, what the hell? You know, like, <laughs> to me, it was like ontological shock, you know, like it was sort of kind of didn't quite fit his paradigm. And so he felt he's not comfortable with that and couldn't explain it and uh, didn't want to be too involved with it and get all caught up with it and thought maybe his um, career path at the university might be sort of damaged, that kind of thing. Oh, bugger, mate. I think a lot of people here will be going, oh, I wish I was there. I wish I could see something like that. Just And like just to have something that's reoccurring all the time too, Like that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, well, that kind of repeatability is not too frequent. Um, and, uh, you know, there are localities around the world where that seems to take place and it does attract a lot of interest. You know, one of the most famous ones is in Norway at Hesdalen. And so... That seemed to be mainly balls of light and that kind of stuff. And so a lot of the speculation there has been more towards natural explanations, that kind of stuff, but um, pretty strange. And it, and it seems to be happening very, very frequently. And, and now there's increasingly a lot of fairly sophisticated efforts at field monitoring of a lot of locations around the world. And uh, now I certainly encourage that. But, you know, you, you do see those rather, I don't know, very tedious kind of uh, uh, documentary shows and stuff like that that tend to uh, turn it into a, a bit of a theatre effort, you know, sort yeah. of like entertainment and it tends to dumb it down a fair bit. Um, uh, but a lot of people react that way to the Skinwalker Ranch TV show. Um, but uh, despite the theatrics and... Um, whatever I've seen sufficient in a lot of the accounts that have been described, even by the new owner, um, 
that uh, there are a lot too many correlations to the things that I experienced, even just at Sheringham and other places that I'm aware of, that that are very hard to dismiss. And so I certainly encourage the efforts of trying to uh, monitor those locations. And I guess the uh, Tim Walker Ranch is the most visible area that we know of, you know. And, uh, um, but it's it, its history is becoming more and more notorious and that kind of stuff. And a lot of people have their own kind of belief systems about what's going on there. But um, I, I'd, that's the kind of thing that I certainly encourage. I, I gave a talk to an early UFO conference way back in 1975, 76. I called it uh, UFO Flats, a, a, um, a, a, basically a, an opportunity to do the uh, science. Uh, conduct a repeatable experiment. Now, the repeatable experiment is the key to scientific method now. They say, you know, there's nothing scientific about UFOs, but in actual fact, there is. Now, a UFO flap and recurring UFO phenomena is the hallmark of a repeatable experiment. You know, you can go in there and test it, monitor it, film it, get all sorts of multi-sensory equipment going. And, that, and there's a lot of places that are attempting to do that. A lot of researchers around the world that are right into that and that's something that i've always advocated yeah so why isn't the whole scientific community like jumping on the chance of this like this is something like it's obviously showing itself again and again sort of thing but yet it only seems to be like uh private organizations like bob bigelow buying out skinwalker there to try and do his own evidence but like why isn't like a uh, multiple organizations getting together sort of thing to try and figure out what's well, going on it's starting to happen very slowly, but all this requires deep pockets, you know, and that kind of stuff, you know, funding, yeah. that kind of stuff. Well, a lot can be achieved at low cost, but ultimately it all comes down to equipment, manpower, time, yeah. you know, technology. But there's an increasing range of, uh, of equipment that's much more portable than it used to be. You know, some of the stuff that we dragged down to Sheringham that we kind of borrowed, so to speak, from the various faculty, physics and chemistry. Yep. Yeah. What are you taking that for, Bill? Don't worry about it. I'll have it back on Monday. <laughs> you know, it's all good, you know. Just uh, look what I'm doing. You know, that kind of stuff. We were doing that all the time. You know? Yeah. And it was uh, um, um, that kind of equipment now becoming uh, much more innovative and... Uh, no, and I guess the, the big example of that potentially could be the Project Galileo that's been started by Avi Loeb, you know, the, um, the, the Harvard scientist. That, uh, and he's not only looking for more of these objects out in outer space like Umamua um, that he advocates might be of an extraterrestrial nature. He's also advocating looking at... Uh, objects that could be possibly uh, from not not from here in our own atmosphere uh, advocating a serious attempt to do that but he, don't, he doesn't want to look at any historical data he doesn't want to look at any classified data either um, he just wants to be able to collect it himself using equipment uh, monitoring equipment that kind of stuff and that's good um, and so it's uh, it'll be an interesting experiment but uh, I think you need to look at what's gone before as well, because there's a huge depth of data out there on previous attempts to uh, investigate 
similar location, uh, such as my own experience at Turingham on the Dorigo Plateau. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I was definitely influenced somewhat by the fact that a year or two earlier I was reading a report uh, by a psychiatrist published in um, uh, the British Flying Source Review, which, or FSR, which was one of the premier magazines of the day, uh, and he was writing up about something called the Woodstock UFO Festival. Now, I'm talking about the area in New York State that was the location, near the location of where the Woodstock Music Festival occurred. And back in the 60s and 70s, there was a major ongoing UFO flap area going on, very similar during him. In fact, he started publishing it, uh, the details, uh, in about 1972. And here am I reading this thinking, oh, this is interesting, and, and then bang, I get handed on a plate during him a year later, almost showing the same sort of phenomena taking place. Um, that's why I then gave a, a, a talk to a UFO um, uh, conference about UFO flaps, using these localities as the mainstay of repeatable experiment, you know, the core of the science to uh, examine it, and that's really what we should be doing. But again, it, it all takes money. Yeah. And time. No, that's cool. fair enough. No, that's definitely fair enough, and uh, hopefully yeah, we do sort of get some sort of, you know, bit more of an idea what's going to be happening out there at Skinwalker or even anywhere at these hotspots in Australia. But um, talking about hotspots here, I have um, did have someone there asking, um, can you describe what uh, what possible hotspots are available in Tasmania? What's been going in Tasmania? Because you did uh-huh. mention that in the last time as well, that Tasmania seemed to be a bit of a point of interest. Yeah. Yeah, T- Tasmania. Uh, Tasmania was really lucky in the sense that it had a, a well-established group there that kicked off about 1965, uh, the Tasmanian uh, UFI Investigation Centre, UFOIC, and it had a, It was one of the best organised groups um, anywhere in Australia as far as recording, documenting on an annual basis uh, for, for many decades. Uh, UFO phenomena right around. Tasmania. So they were an excellent group and they had a lot of really interesting accounts. Uh, uh, that group is sort of uh, most of the original players in the group have now since retired or or stepped back, that kind of thing. And it's more of a, um, uh, I guess, a, a social media type presence, website, that kind of stuff. And uh, I think there is some investigation still going on. I'm, I made contact with some of the people from time to time, but uh, when I looked at a lot of those locations, uh, there's a lot of areas uh, that seem to have recurring phenomena, like Medina um, and uh, the middle of um, uh, Tasmania uh, in the Tablelands area up there. The thing about Tasmania is you, you, you don't realise how small the place is. You know, like here in New South Wales or in larger states, we're used to travelling vast distances. The vast distance for Tasmanian researchers is 20 or 30 kilometres down the road. So <laughs> yeah. that, you know, like, like there's a lot of provincialism, no apologies to Tasmanians, but yeah, um, I, I looked into a couple of areas that had a lot of things going on, like uh, what was euphemistically referred to as Highland Farm. Uh, that, that was a pseudonym given to it, um, where there was, it was like Gimorka, like Turingham really weird phenomena going on, apparitional phenomena, um, 
force of light, object seen, being seen, like a caravan parked on the property, and uh, a um, um, one of the people inside the caravan witnesses a, a being floating down through the top of the caravan skylight into the caravan, um, and seeing apparitions in colonial dress, uh, like like traditional ghosts, but then other things that seem to be changing shape, uh, that kind of thing, and uh, a lot of UFO phenomena as well associated with it as well. So that, that kind of area really interests me and attracts me to So I shot it up to uh, find out where Highland Farm was. Uh, spent a bit of time there, but nothing happened while I was there. Yeah, bugger. <laughs> yeah, bugger, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it was right place, right time, eh? And if you're lucky enough... Yeah. Uh... Um, so I do have some other questions here from um, from because uh, I put uh, the bit of a recap stream up there last night, and someone sort of asking the questions during that recap there, which obviously wouldn't have been noticed by us. Um, but uh, someone's asking if um, is Tully Queensland still active in regards to has like any recent UFO or witness reports? Um, I'm not quite so aware of what's been happening in the last few years at Tully. Uh, it seems to be recurring from time to time, but the main period of activity for Tully was during the 60s and um, the 70s, a little less so in the 80s. But uh, um, Certainly the Queensland group uh, with Pearl Gosselin Company, they, they would know a lot more about that as to how frequently it's going off. But Tully has been seen as one of those locations where UFOs seem to occur all the time. And from time to time, I get people reporting stuff to me. But a lot of it's anecdotal. And you try to get beyond the anecdotal, it tends to uh, wither away. And you don't get enough information to really encourage going up there and checking it out. But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. People keep telling me, and certainly the people... Um, the Panisi family that owned the Horseshoe Lagoon, which was the focus of the, the famous 1966 case with George Pedley, they're, they're, they're implying that stuff keeps happening from time to time. But I, I guess they don't want to encourage too much uh, sort of foot traffic going through there because it's still a working farm and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So obviously not too much happening at the moment, but obviously, yeah. Well, it's, it's like the anecdote I think I might have showed last time that uh, going to the corner store, or, or I said at the beginning of this conversation, um, checking, talking to the to the person at Turingham School and asking about anything strange, UFO related happening, he said, no, none of this stuff's happening around there until they, they know who you are, if you're familiar to them and you've got their their um, respect or their, their confidence, um, yep. then they might open up to you. And in this, in this particular case, uh, when she had already told me before she realised who I was that there was nothing happening there, as soon as she knew who I was, she was telling me, oh, they had a close encounter behind the stool, behind the immediate stool, only a month earlier. <laughs> so, wow. um, so, again, a lot of the UFO phenomenon is hidden. Uh, and uh, I think people that get into these areas need to be respectful of the local communities and get their confidence and that kind of stuff. And, don't step on too many toes or aggravate people, you know, respect people and uh, uh, do the right thing and uh, um, check out these locations. And quite often it, it requires a fair investment of time uh, to figure out some of these localities. 
patience is a virtue in the UFO game. Oh, definitely. Uh, I'm certainly Mr. Patience. I've been at it and still relatively sane uh, after decades. So. <laughs> well, you'd be considered sane anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> depends, who you, depends who you talk to. Yeah. yeah. Look, uh, respect's got to go a long way with this sort of stuff here. And like, it, it's like the, um, we'll mention like in the last episode there, like the the uh, the whole... Uh, oh, God, I've lost myself now. The whole topic of the UFO there has been criticised and all that sort of like the respect has like gone right out through the window there and it's slowly building its way back up. And you know, yeah. people, if, if you approach them with respect, they're going to sort of come forward with that, which is slowly happening now, kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people, you know, your show, for example, you know, uh, people contacting reporting their own experience, it's great kind of thing. You can do it anonymously or you can do it and have your name. Of, uh, link to it or whatever, but that's difficult for a lot of people depending on what circumstances they're in and there's always been that long-term stigma associated with reporting things, but uh, that stigma is certainly getting less and less um, and I, I guess it depends on what you're talking about and what you're trying to report. You know, some people can be their own worst enemy, the, the way of what they present and they, that sometimes they can uh, come across a little intense and um, perhaps uh, don't apply common sense to some of the things that they're describing. It's always best to check and, and also uh, be aware of what's happening in your own environment and really yeah. critically assess what's actually occurring and look for possible explanations. Particularly, uh, you know, researchers like me, <laughs> we get a bit jaded giving an astronomy lesson to somebody that's been looking and reporting um, night after night something that's popping up in the same location and you know in your heart of hearts it's probably something astronomical yeah. try and let people down gently and uh, that kind of stuff and um, give them a good e education yeah. yeah i've dealt with that a fair bit myself personally they're like you know people mistaking like a, a miscaptured insect in the while they're trying to take a photo or something and, you know they get the streak of a bug going through and um so yeah, well, that, that that's unfortunate. You know, modern digital technology is really a wonderful thing. There's a lot of instantaneous photography going on, that kind of stuff. But it also has the potential for capturing uh, a lot of artifacts that uh, look good. You know, yeah. One of the, the standard things in uh, UFO photographs these days is the situation of people look at their photographs days later or a week later and they look at it carefully and they see something. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, like a classic lens flare or <laughs> something like that. Yeah, well, there was one I remember of a horse stud and they had security cameras um, and they would see what appeared to be an orb um, appearing and apparently frightening the, the horses. But then I, I was able to actually recreate that effect and it was essentially uh, drops of water on the camera lens, capturing the light, and also spider's webs, creating what appeared to be movement and that kind of stuff. You know? Yeah. Uh, um, and then, um, yeah, there, there was some pretty weird things going on there, but I think you've got to have an open mind, but get led by the evidence, not by your own belief system. Yeah, that's what I say to a lot of people too. Like, you know, keep an open mind, but also keep a critical thought on things, like you are saying. Like, you know, you've got to... Yeah. 
rule out every other possibility of logical explanation before you go and yeah. throw a card up saying it's an alien craft or an alien being. Yeah, well, um, I, I, I kind of work on the... Well, a lot of people in this area tend to assume UFO first. And yeah. It's going to be a UFO no matter what, um, that kind of thing. Whereas I assume initially that it's most likely going to be something prosaic, something easily explainable. Yeah. Um, let, let the quality of the evidence tell me otherwise. And uh, once you start looking at it, um, those really strong cases stand out very, very well and stand the test of time. So, yeah, there's some really striking cases out there. Oh, without a doubt. Like, there's no doubt there's definitely something going on out there and all that sort of stuff. But like, you, like we've been just been saying, like, you just can't assume that everything's UFO or... Oh, I suppose it is UFO because I'm identified at the time, but you know, it's it's yeah. it's got a um, explanation behind most of it, and that's the thing. Like you're saying, like people need to go and work, like figure out what's around their environment, and yep. keep an eye on what's happening in the sky because things change throughout the year, and that like people misidentifying Venus of all things, like because you know, they're not looking up enough or they're not paying much attention, and yeah. next thing there's big bright light in the evening sky or morning sky, and what the hell is that? And freaking out, thinking sun alien invasion and it's like well hang on that's nah, just venus it's been there for like well, weeks it, it, it even happens to um you know experienced people you know, often make mistakes yeah well, that's human then they have to backtrack and try and rationalize it and push it aside yeah oh look they, we all they, hate admitting that we're wrong <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah like, it's one of those things i suppose like yeah keep an open mind but keep it, uh, your feet grounded sort of thing as well yeah, I think I noticed a question earlier about uh, the Westall fuel case and the photo, the Baldwin photo. Yes, actually, that was um, one of the ones that's going to pop up there. Um, the Bell, hang on, where did it go? The uh, the Baldwin Bell photo. If that was yep. the same, that was sighted at Westall. Yeah, yeah. Again, if people look for Baldwin and Westall on my blog site, you'll see a number of references to the photograph case and the Westall. Now, I've talked to a lot of the Westall witnesses and. Uh, um, Westall to me was kind of like a sleeper case um, there was a little bit of publicity to begin with at the time when it took place in 1966 but then we became increasingly aware over the decades that there was more to this case than met the eye but most people were reluctant to describe it and, uh, and there was a lot of I guess ridicule uh, at the time and that kind of thing And uh, but ultimately it proved to be a real solid sleeper case. Now we've got hundreds of people, and, and it became it was rather difficult to track down a lot of witnesses to Westall over the decade. The initial handful, but then um, eventually um, people started to investigate it in more detail, and with the advent of uh, social media and stuff like that, it made it a hell of a lot easier to track people down. Yeah. Of course, Shane, Shane Ryan focused on that one single case. And that had a lot of benefit uh, because it provided, along with social media, the opportunity to uh, flush out a lot of witnesses. Yeah. And, uh, one of those was uh, uh, Victor Zachary, who <laughs> his testimony was really interesting. Uh, because he, he was the one described. You probably see it in the documentary or various shows that have been there, where he was what a kid that actually got so close to it he was thinking about touching the object on the ground. 
Yeah. Um, and then the side, you can feel heat, the two objects on the ground. So I, I went to the location with him and tried to do a forensic reconstruction of what he saw and did a drawing. And uh, I, I see my, my drawings pop up all over the place. And I've attributed to all sorts of people. <laughs> but yeah. um, it, it um, just shows two objects and a number of kids just a sketch, uh, but done, I think, fairly accurately to Victor's description, uh, done on location uh, where I interviewed him on site. And it, uh, it shows that him and the other kids near the fence line with other kids and the teacher near the fence line. Because, yep. um, yeah, he ignored the, um, um, the entreaties of the teachers not to go over a fence. He said, bugger this, I'm going over the fence, and he goes over the fence. <laughs> But then has second thoughts about touching one of the objects that he's closest to. And then as he's backing off, uh, they both rise up. One goes up and does a rotation around a, a Cessna passing overhead. And the yeah. other one takes off. Um, it goes down into the uh, range area. You know, it's a story that's well known now. Yes. In many ways. But it's, what's interesting and not well known was that uh, why did Victor not join all the other kids? Rushed down chasing the UFO that went down the drains, and he went home to lunch, have lunch uh, uh, in, in, in the middle of the site. And you think, why would you do that? He said, because I'd seen it before, oh. <laughs> up close. And, and uh, it was only a year or two earlier that he's in the middle of the night uh, raiding a, a local factory to knock off a couple of wooden pallets to make a billy cart out of. <laughs> and he's there planning to go down and take a few wooden pallets away, as you do as a kid, back in the day. Yep. And uh, the, um, this object appears, and it's actually um, flying along on edge. And to him, it was identical to what he saw a couple of years later in the middle of the Westall's school sighting during the day. Wow. So he saw it up pretty close. And the closest thing that was similar to it is, if you look at the Baldwin photograph, there's a look a long way of getting back to the Baldwin photograph. The Baldwin photograph is, is looking on its side. Um, it's, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a strange photo, and a lot of people think it's a bicycle bell or, or whatever or, or something like that, but I've known the guy that took the photograph, Jim Kivoli, passed away quite recently, and I've known the family and him for more than a decade or two, and uh, we've had a lot of deep and heavy conversations over the uh, um, I'm fairly impressed with it. Um, uh, you know, it, each individual thing, it, you can't look at it as that proof. Uh, but it, there's always a bit of a, a, a element of doubt, that kind of thing. But the ball and photograph, I think, is fairly impressive. And it does seem to show what some of the witnesses described at Westall. It only occurred a couple of days apart from the Westall case. Uh, and it was because of uh, a CSRO scientist that was obsessed with the Westall case, uh, obsessively calling them at all hours of the night, um, that he uh, eventually made the photograph available to a, to the UFO group of the day, and then it leaked into the media, and then he says all hell broke loose because then the military started calling. And they yes, wanted yes. to know about this photograph. And uh, so there was a lot going on in Victoria at the time in 1960. 1966 was an amazing year. Yeah, it really seems. was amazing. 
Yeah. Mate, yeah. look, we're going to... We're punch of a time here so um, mate look if you're I interested still mate we might like to get you back for a part three on this and uh continue this on if that's all right with you yeah 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 that'd be fine at some point yeah, yeah you've got to check out your kids and see whether they're crashed yeah i don't know where they've gone they've probably gone out wandering trying to find some chocolate down the corner shop or something like you know <laughs> well, one, would hope, one would hope not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not the first time they've tried it so okay. um but yeah mate Thank look you. Um, yeah, look, mate, we'll definitely get you back on for a part three if um, that's all right with you, mate, and we'll continue on and hopefully uh, no interruptions with the kids in the next time, but yeah. um, yeah. it is what it is. Everything's all good with the family as well. Yeah, yeah, look, I think she'll be recovering well, and uh, yeah, thanks to everyone who did get concerned on that, but um, yeah, look, mate, right, thank you very much for coming and joining again tonight. Um, we will sort this video thing out and try and get something working properly one day. I'm trying to do this on a budget, but <laughs> it is what it is. Um, it's it's working, but yeah, thank you very much, mate, for coming on the show, mate. It's, it's absolutely a pleasure. a pleasure having you on. Pleasure. Thank you very much, mate. Take care, Take care mate. Cheers, mate. Catch you later. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.